It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And um, by the by, you can listen to us on the Internet, live streaming on the Internet, called LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us all across the country, throughout the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. All those. You can't miss it. And during the week, please, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Kudlow. It plays at 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I know I took Good Friday off, but I'll be back on Monday, 4 to 5 p.m. And if for some crazy reason you can't be there at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. Okay, I want to talk... um, Here at the opening, I know this is uh, Saturday, and Donald Trump's uh, uh, indictment and charges or the lack thereof were Tuesday. But I'm going to talk some more about that because it's such a huge event. And I think uh, Mr. Trump really did a great job abiding by the law. I mean, he showed up, abide by the law in the courtroom. There was some speculation he wouldn't, but he did. But the main thing here, the main, main, main point I want to make is that Donald Trump stood tall, okay? He stood tall, unflinching, as these crazy, far-left, woke, progressive Democrats are trying to destroy him, which is what they're trying to do, which is what they've always tried to do. From the moment he came down the escalator in Trump Tower in the summer of 2015, They have tried to destroy him. They have not. They have not destroyed him, in my judgment, nor will they. And moreover, he is not going to let the country surrender to these left-wing political forces that basically hate freedom. They hate democracy. Trump will fight it because that's his nature. He's the greatest fighter for freedom in this country, and he will not surrender. He will not. I know him. I worked for him for three years. The presidential race will be the presidential race. We have a bunch of guests today that are going to talk about that, what his polls look like. Some Democrats think he's the best candidate for Joe Biden to beat. I don't have that point of view, but I'm not taking sides right now in the presidential race. I'm just looking at Donald Trump's greatness. He stood up unflinchingly, and he will not not allow the left to destroy him. He is a defender of law and order and democracy. And by the by, without getting too legal, because I'm not a lawyer, fact is Alvin Bragg, this crazy left-wing progressive, Democrat who ran against Trump. He didn't run as a prosecutor. He ran to get Trump. I mean, the indictment was just awful. Talks about a felony falsification of records, business records, Trump Corporation business records, a felony falsification. They've never proven that. They've never proven that. They've never proven that there were any false entries into these business records. But here's the key point. Bragg is trying to say, that they falsified the business records with an intent to defraud 
that specifically included trying to commit another crime or aid or conceal the commission of that other crime. So just to be real simple, the charge here is former President Trump falsified business records of his company, which is privately owned, and he did that with the intent to commit another crime, but the indictment never and at no point specifies what that crime is. There's no crime. Excuse me, Greg, what's the crime? Yes, he never said it. He has 34 counts of uh, business records, which is stupid in the first place. Should only have one. But putting that aside, what is the crime that Trump intended to commit because he falsified, allegedly falsified his business records of the company he owns? And it has nothing to do with election law. And we will have Brad Smith on at the half hour to talk about that. He's a former member of the uh, Federal Election Commission. He's now teaching law. Point is, Bragg never showed a crime. So we went through this whole thing. No, there, there. But then I think I want to skip to Mar-a-Lago and Mr. Trump's speech Tuesday night, which I thought was one of the best speeches he's ever made. And again, it shows you how tall he's standing despite this left-wing assault. He was restrained, but he made important points, basically. He will never let the country surrender to whatever left-wing political forces who hate freedom, who hate democracy. He will not surrender to the politicalization of our entire criminal law justice system. He will not. Or the weaponization of our justice system. Or the weaponization used by the Department of Justice itself, as well as U.S. attorneys, Democrat U.S. attorneys, and little nothingheimers like this Alvin Bragg of New York, who was so pathetic in his indictment, which was so incorrect. Here's one section of Trump's superb speech at Mar-a-Lago Tuesday night. I will quote, We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. We can't let that happen. With all this being said, and with a very dark cloud over our beloved country, I have no doubt, nevertheless, that we will make America great again. This is Trump at Mar-a-Lago on his speech Tuesday night. With all the dark cloud hanging over our beloved country, I have no doubts, nevertheless, that we will make America great again. This is a man who will not surrender, and he will not allow the left-wing takeover of our entire legal and judicial system. And I just want to say, America has always been a nation of laws. We've always prided ourselves that we abide by the rule of law. And I want to say in economics, okay, this is predominantly an economics show. Remember, America has always distinguished itself by observing private property rights, private property rights, and hence the rule of law. 
in all our transactions. Private property rights go all the way back to the founding fathers 250 years ago. It's the basis of free market economics. It's the basis of free market capitalism, private property. And then the rest of the world, by the way, almost everywhere in the rest of the world, with the exception of Great Britain, all the European countries, Latin America, Asia, the government has the private property rights, not private business or landowners or farmers or financiers or entrepreneurs. But in this country, it is the individual and the property owner, the property rights, who take precedence in our court system. And again, that is borrowed from Magna Carta, basically, in Great Britain. That's where that all began and evolved from British law, but not Europe. The second point I want to make in Trump's superb speech is tough words on the economy. Quote, with all we did, with all we did on energy, on the military, or big tax cuts, or deregulation. He said, with all that, now the U.S. is in a mess. That's Biden's mess. Our economy is crashing. Inflation is out of control. Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard. And then he gave up on energy independence and energy dominance. Now, this is important. This is my neck of the woods. I was the NEC director, National Economic Council director. This is Mr. Trump saying, if he were reelected, he will go back to tax cuts. He will go back to the deregulation of business and energy. He will make sure the dollar, king dollar, is strong and remains the world's reserve currency, and fight hard for energy independence. By the way, I want to add, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and the House Republicans have an excellent bill, H.R. 1. H.R. 1 was my idea going back to the November election. They've given me credit for it, but that's not important. H.R. 1 would give us back our energy independence free up, reopen the spigots for all the above, fossil fuels as well as renewables. Biden has driven the economy into a ditch. I mean, Biden's embraced this progressive, far-left idea of modern monetary theory. You can spend whatever you want. You can borrow deficits, debt, money printing, anything you want. Redistribution, no harm. Well, it's wrong. Because the economy is now on the verge of recession and the inflation rate has soared. It's come down a bit, but still harmful. 22 months, 22 months, the consumer price index is growing faster than real worker wages. Real wages have fallen 22 months for the typical American family, the blue collar. And I might add, it's just worse for the lower-income people who have to pay this high cost of living and watch their standard of living decline because the dollars in their pockets are worth less. We'll talk about the dollar later in the show. It's a very important story. 
but just to say two points that Mr. Trump made in Mar-a-Lago. One, he will fight to stop the politicalization, the weaponization of our legal and judicial system. He will fight to stop. He will never, never allow the Alvin Braggs of the world or the Merrick Garlands of the world or the Joe Bidens of the world to politicize the judicial and legal system for their own left-wing aims. He will not allow it. And second, and second, he will fight to restore the kind of economic growth and prosperity agenda that he successfully implemented in his first term on lower taxes, on deregulation, on energy independence, on king dollar, on low inflation. He will fight back what Joe Biden has overturned in just a little more than two years. So the integrity of our judicial and legal system and the strength of our economy And remember, it was the middle class and the lower classes and the minority groups, the blacks, the browns, the Asians, the women. They're the ones who benefited the most from Trump's tax cuts. You can look that up from Trump's business deregulation. You can look up those statistics, even though Biden lies about them continuously. The facts are there. And Trump stood tall. I'll just say that again. He stood tall. I don't know the outcome of this. I mean, I don't, the next time in court is December 6th. I'm not sure it'll ever get to court. I'm certain it'll be overturned, but I'm not the lawyer. I'm just saying Trump laid down his own laws to keep American freedom, to keep our democracy sound, to stop the left-wing politicalization, to stop the destruction of our economy and our currency and to make us strong around the world. Trump stood tall and will not stop fighting. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a pause here and be back. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh... Mr. Trump standing tall, and we're going to come back, uh, Mr. Bradley Smith, who was on the Federal Election Commission not too long ago, we'll talk some more about the Trump case, the pathetic Trump case. But one other quick thing, there's a lot of stuff in the papers and TV and whatnot about the U.S. dollar falling, and somehow it's going to be replaced by the Chinese yuan or Chinese renminbi. Uh, ain't going to happen, all right? That's my first point. Ain't going to happen. Uh, I call it King Dollar. That's a phrase that I coined back in the early 90s, <laughs> which stuck. But look, 90% of the world's transactions are in dollars, okay, 
It's like $6.6 trillion worth on a daily basis. Goods, services, financial, you name it, 90%. So the dollar is, you know, the most important currency and one will, will remain so uh, for a long time and <laughs> probably forever, but nothing's forever. Uh, there is, I mean, there is, some people said, well, the dollar as a foreign exchange reserves for central banks uh, has dropped from about 70% to a little less than 60% in the last 20 years. But that's just kind of a theoretical notion. Uh, the central banks diversify their portfolios. Uh, that really doesn't tell you much of anything. Uh, it's the transactions, basically the utility of the dollars, the medium but the point I want to make is we shouldn't be worried. I'm not worried about the Chinese yuan. They have capital controls. The, it's a state-run economy. Uh, there are only a few heavily controlled investment firms in China. I mean, you just don't want to park your money in China. I mean, I, if the Saudis want to sell uh, oil to China and take some yuan, that's fine. But they'll convert it to dollars. The only ones kind of stuck in that uh, is Russia. But, again, the yuan is like – Less than 1% of the world's transactions. But, again, if you're worried about the health of King Dollar, as I am, you know, then the phrase is, we have seen the enemy and the enemy is us. Okay, if the United States government, if the Bidens in particular, and Trump mentioned this, because Trump, when I worked with him, Trump uh, was very keen on keeping the dollar the number one currency in the world, the standard monetary standard. He understood that. A great country should have a great currency. But if we inflate, if we spend, overspend, if we overborrow, if we over-deficit, if we over-tax, if we over-regulate, if we over-money creation, and we generate more inflation, then the dollar will sink. Interestingly, I'm not sure why this is, but since last October, uh, the dollar has lost about 15%, and the price of gold's gone up about 20%, 18%. Gold's over $2,000 an ounce, and on the foreign exchange markets, the uh, dollar, so-called DXY, uh, has fallen almost back to 100 or 101. It was about 115. So that, you know, Biden keeps telling us he's cutting deficits, and the Federal Reserve keeps saying they're cutting inflation by reducing the money supply. That may be true or not true. It may be false. And anyway, there's no confidence in Joe Biden's administration, so people may not want to hold dollars as much as usual. So the enemy is us. If we spend, borrow, print money, then we're going to see King Dollars sink. It's not that the other currencies are so great. Right now, we're the worst of the bad lot. We're the best of the worst lot. (laughs) But the point is, we would destroy the dollar right here. We don't need China's help. We'll destroy the dollar. So I want to keep King Dollar alive. I'd love to link the dollar to gold or some broad commodity index to make it as sound as it can be. We'll talk some more about that King Dollar stuff over the course of the show. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back with Mr. Brad Smith to talk about this stupid Trump lawsuit by this left-wing Alvin Bragg. This is The Larry Cudlow Show. 
Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And I want to talk some more about this Trump indictment and uh, all the flaws and problems with it. So we're going to bring in Bradley Smith. Brad Smith's Capital University professor of law, and he's chairman and founder of the Institute for Free Speech. He's the co-author of Voting Rights and Election Law, and he's a former Federal Election Commission commissioner. Oh, Brad, were you the chairman of that commission? Or I was chairman in 2004. There you go. So he was the big dog in 2004. And I'm reading in the Wall Street Journal... About a week ago, Trump indictment is a perversion of campaign finance law. And then the subheader, if a candidate has to pay for his own clothes, surely hush money is likewise a personal expense. I would only say we don't even know about the recording of the hush money and all that. But what's wrong with uh, Alvin Bragg's idea? He didn't even specify a crime, Brad. I mean, that's the most incredible thing. But you take it from there. Tell us what the uh, problems are. Right. So, uh, again, let's go over the the basic charge that Bragg is making is that Trump falsified business record business records. But that's chump change. That's a, a misdemeanor. The statute of limitations is long past. And, you know, people Trump's detractors don't want to see him charged with a falsification of business records. They want something that's a felony. You know, they want to see him in cuffs and in jail. <laughs> and and what arguably can make it a felony, or at least what Bragg says can make it a felony, is that under New York law, if you commit a crime, falsification of business, or if you commit falsification of business records, I should say, to cover up a crime, then it becomes a felony. Jail time is a possibility and so on. Statute of limitations is longer and, and, and so on. And so what is the other crime that was being covered up? Well, as you point out, Larry, the, the uh, indictment doesn't really say very clearly, but the way the facts are stated and everything we've heard suggests that what Bragg is saying is the other crime that was covered up was Federal Election Campaign Act crimes of not reporting a, a campaign contribution. Mm. Now, there are so many problems with this. I mean, first of all, even if this were a problem, typically non-failure to accurately report federal election expenditures is is a civil penalty uh, not a criminal charge but uh, let, let's let's suppose that we want to charge it criminally what is the crime hmm. well it's not reporting campaign expenditure the hush money was a campaign expenditure how does Bragg get there he says well the law says that anything for the purpose of influencing an election is a contribution or an expenditure and uh, Trump paid this to try to influence his election Therefore, case closed, I win. The problem is that that's not really how the law works. That's not how it's read. It does use that language, no doubt about that. That's an absolute quote, you know, for the purpose of influencing the election. But the standard doesn't mean, you know, the subjective purpose of the person acting. It means what is the objective purpose? You know, what is a list of things that you spend money on in campaigns? So you don't buy campaign ads if you're not running for Congress. You don't open a campaign headquarters if you're not running for Congress. You don't hire a campaign manager if you're not running for Congress. Those are the kinds of things that are campaigning that are for so, the purpose So there's no doubt. The federal election. Above, among those things, there's no doubt. Those are campaign-related things. Right. You don't do those if you're not running for office. Right. But a lot of things people do are for the purpose of, of uh, influencing their election are not considered campaign expenditures by the FEC. Some of these are specifically uh, excluded under the statute. For example, any item of per- uh, personal clothing. So if you go out and decide, i got to upgrade my wardrobe so I look good on the campaign trail, your whole reason for doing that may be to influence the election. 
but it's not a campaign expenditure. Mm. Uh, things like country club memberships and athletic tickets. So if you say, I need these to help help me raise money for the campaign, I can take donors to the sporting event, they'll give me you know, money for the campaign and so on. Not a campaign expense, even though the purpose for buying it was to influence the campaign. And but but what's in the statute is also not an exhaustive list. So there's all kinds of other things that that would count. So let me give some examples that may seem more in touch with uh, the Mr. Trump's situation. If uh, I had had a messy divorce in my background and decided to run for Congress, I might pay a lawyer to try to seal up those divorce records. Mm-hmm. And my purpose for doing that would be to influence the campaign, but that would not be considered a campaign expenditure. Why? Because just like people buy clothes, whether they're running for office or not, some people will have to pay a lawyer for divorce proceedings and to seal those records and so on. It's not something that's caused by the act of campaigning. Mm-hmm. You choose to do it because you want to influence the election, but it's not caused by that. Or another, uh, one more example is uh, if you want to settle business disputes. Say you're a businessman, you own a couple uh, restaurants, uh, you have some complaints against you alleging racial discrimination in your restaurants. You think these claims are complete nonsense, but you don't want this you know, being argued out in the press when you're running for office and accusations, oh, he's a racist and so on. And so you tell your corporate lawyer, you know, settle these settle, settle these allegations. And, and he may tell you, no, no, we, we, you know, we shouldn't settle these. It's a great case. You say, I don't care. I'm running for office. I don't want these interfering. Your purpose in, in settling those and having the company settle those is to influence the campaign, but it's not a campaign expenditure. Uh, you can't have your campaign pay for it. And so Bragg's odd theory here. Because just, to, be not, just yeah. let me hang on. Because, because it affects your personal life. It's not just right. limited to a campaign. I mean, in exactly. Trump, to be direct with Trump, uh, the allegation is he falsified business records uh, to uh, cover up hush money payments. Right. But I mean, that that will ha- that itself will have to be proven in court. But 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 I'm just saying, supposing that were true, he could be he could be trying to cover up for personal reasons to save his marriage, uh, you know, his kids. He, he wanted to keep it out of the press. Uh, you know, he told this guy, uh, Pecker, from the uh, National Enquirer, uh, you buy it and, and then bury it, that kind of thing. It wasn't, in other words, he personally or reputationally would benefit. It wasn't directly. I've read your article so many times, I want to make sure I understand that. You know, I'm especially interested in the $6,000 bespoke suit. But putting, <laughs> but putting that aside, do I have that right? In other words, it, for personal use, if it helps your personal situation, it's not like hiring a campaign manager or buying a, uh, you know, um, a bunch of campaign pins. There's a difference here. Right. Right. And the idea of the purpose isn't, you know, why you decided to do it. It's it's that objective notion as you just described it. This is something that that could benefit you that people do. Maybe right. not you, but somebody does this even if you're not even if they're not running for yep. office. Yep, yep, sure. I mean, I could buy my suit. I may wear it in a debate, but uh, I may you know if I lose, I may wear that suit for the next ten years. So I don't. It's not a campaign expenditure. I get that. Right. I didn't get it at first, but now I finally figured out. So this this is so interesting to me. Um, tell you were the he, you were the head of the Federal Election Commission in two thousand four. That's an election year. 
Did you have any uh, disputes that you had to uh, arbitrate or decide on at that way back? That so that was Bush. Let me make sure. My friend George W. Bush, uh, who remains a great friend of mine, and um, uh, who's a what's he? Uh, Kerry. Kerry. Uh, that's right, John Kerry, the crazy climate guy. So, did you have anything you had to uh, arbitrate or decide on? Well, these kinds of claims, you know, if we're talking about uh, this personal use type stuff, I don't remember that any came up in the presidential race that year. But they do come up to the FEC. I don't want to say all the time. It's not like they're super frequent, but Mm. but they're not they're not, uh, you know, the black swan or the unicorn either. I mean, you you see these with some regularity and candidates often want to push the envelope. They say, Mm -hmm. well, you know, I I have to campaign a lot, so I need to hire a nanny to take care of my kids while I'm out campaigning. You know, not a campaign expense. Uh, you know, and they'll do this with a lot of things like that, trying to push the envelope. And and the danger here that people should realize is that we don't want a system in which you can spend your campaign funds for these things that benefit you personally, because you start to think of how that would very quickly open the door mm. to widespread abuse. You know, I'm a fairly famous person. I, I want to have somebody else pay for a bunch of stuff. I declare myself running for office and, and I raise campaign funds and spend it for, you know, home security system. That's one thing we had requested at the FEC. I can spend it on, you know, legal fees that are mm. very, very tangentially related to me having held office in the past. And you get a lot of things like that. You know, that's not what we want. We don't want a candidate, for example, saying, well, you know, I took a donor down to the Super Bowl, uh, you know, because it was a campaign expense because he was a donor. That's not what we want happening. So we we actually don't want that. And and like like so much of what's going on here uh, is that we're abandoning all kinds of sort of principles and and what is our long-term interest in this, you know, attempt by, uh, you know, folks to get Trump. They're kind of willing to abandon anything there to get him. Brad, you got some more time. Can I take a commercial break and come back with you? You got a couple more minutes for us. Sure. Sure Uh, You're terrific. Folks, we're talking to Bradley Smith, who's a Capital University professor of law and was former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, so he knows whereof he speaks uh, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Bradley Smith, who was a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, which, of course, enters into this uh, crazy Al, Alvin Bragg indictment of Donald Trump. Anyway, Bradley Smith is a Capital University professor of law, He's the chairman and founder of the Institute for Free Speech, and he's the co-author of Voting Rights and Election Law. Brad, um, I want to ask you about this whole business that Alvin Bragg uh, forgot to insert a crime <laughs> into his charges against uh, against Donald Trump. So um, I'm reading our friend Andy McCarthy Andrew McCarthy, Bragg's indictment fails to state a crime not once but 34 times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, He talks about a felony falsification of records under New York Penal Code, but he has to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond reasonable doubt, that Trump caused a false entry to be made in his business records and and did so with an intent to defraud that specifically included trying to to commit another crime. 
Nowhere in the indictment does the grand jury specify what other crime Trump fraudulently endeavored uh, to commit. So I don't, I mean, I don't, the presumption was this had something to do with federal election laws, but you're saying no. So what's the crime here? Well, I, I mean, obviously what Bragg is going to try to do is convince uh, a jury that this is a crime. And I, I do want to point out, I mean, there are people who argue uh, the opposite. They say, no, no, uh, if he intended to influence the election subjectively, it's a crime. Like I said, I don't think the law supports that. There's no, to my knowledge, any uh, uh, court uh, opinion, no appellate court has ever uh, made a ruling on that. It's worth noting that the FEC looked at this case and right. chose not to pursue it. Yeah. So the FEC, I think, also does not see this as a crime. And, and that leads us to a couple of things that are worth mentioning. It gets kind of into the, the weeds of, of the law, but I love the weeds. I love weeds. <laughs> there you go. Well, first, you know, is that there's what's called uh, federal preemption. That is, a state can't have a law that contravenes a federal law. So, right. for example, in, in federal campaign finance law, you can give a candidate three thousand three hundred dollars. New York couldn't pass a law saying it's illegal to give any candidate more than two thousand dollars. Right? They can do that for state office governor and stuff, but not for Congress, President, uh, U.S. Senate. So here. Uh, you know, Bragg can't really have an interpretation of the law, I think, that is contrary to that of, of the, you know, the, the federal agencies that are supposed to be interpreting the law. So he's got that problem. Then he's got a problem uh, under the Federal uh, Judiciary Act of 1789. I mean, this is one of our oldest laws, right? 1789 is one of the first laws passed in the first Congress. And it says that all federal felonies are under the exclusive jurisdiction of federal courts. Right. So. So it's very hard, you know, now uh, what Bragg is going to argue, I'm not charging him with a federal crime. I'm charging him with a state crime, a falsifying business records to cover up another crime. But because Trump has not been convicted of any other crime, to get there, I think he's going to have to prove that Trump violated federal law. And I think and then on the basis of being able to prove that, if he could, Trump would get jail time as opposed to a misdemeanor. Mm. That sounds an awful lot to me, like using state court to prosecute a federal crime. And, you know, the Judiciary Act would seem to prohibit that. So there's all kinds of, you know, legal obstacles that pop up here beyond the basic FEC, you know, is this a violation of the Federal Election Campaign Act question? Well, that's, uh, and I don't know how Bray gets through them all. Yeah, I mean, that. by the way, what you're saying is almost uh, identical to what Andrew McCarthy writes uh, in his, uh, Andy was a former prosecutor, you may you may know him, uh, smart guy, an old friend of mine, National Review, uh, but he was a prosecutor for many, many, many years. And you can't, you know, uh, Trump's running for president. It's a federal office. So New York state law uh, doesn't work. The other thing that McCarthy raises is that the Trump stuff wouldn't have been during the election. The reporting would have been in 2017, not 2016. So that's a problem. And then, of course, there's the issue of the statute of limitations. I mean, at what point that stuff is supposedly run out unless you're going to recreate. I mean, I don't understand. I'm not a lawyer, obviously. So we get his rags got the wrong court system. I, I, I New York state versus federal. And, and I don't know when does this, I thought two years for a misdemeanor, uh, what five, this five years for a felony. Um, this stuff was seven years ago, but it wouldn't have been reported even if it had done what Bragg wanted until 2017. So how could it influence the election when it would have been the year after the election? 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's two, a couple things here. First, again, I'm not a criminal attorney, I need to point out. But, yeah, on the statute of limitations, apparently Bragg has a theory that, that Trump can, that statute of limitations is told while Trump was continuously out of the state and that that gets this just barely within the statute of limitations. That, that's my understanding. Mm. The, you know, I think he's got a real problem with that. Mm. And then, then you have the question of, um, uh, of how does he, you know, turn this, you know, we're back to the question of how does this turn into a, a federal crime? Um, and I just don't don't see how you you make that stick. You can't, you know, hold Trump uh, liable uh, for a federal crime mm. for something he hasn't been convicted of, unless you're actually prosecuting him for that crime. And mm. and the idea that you could go, you know, essentially he'd be getting a jail term because he was prosecuted in state court and found to have violated a federal law. And that's a clear violation of the Judiciary Act. Like I said, 1789. It's one of the oldest governing statutes we have. Mm. It's really fascinating. So what do you think, you know, why did they have to wait till December 4th? I mean, it, I got to tell you, again, as a total non-lawyer, I think what Bragg was doing here is assuaging all these far-left progressives who were yelling at him to get Trump. Like, that's what he campaigned on, but he didn't do it, and then now he did it. I don't think he cares about the outcome. Honestly, I think he feels his work is done. He had he had his indictment. He had the president fingerprinted. Blah blah blah. Uh, his news conference was pathetic, Brad. Because he didn't even name a crime. Couldn't find a crime. And uh, I don't th- I don't even know if it's going to get to court. He did what he wanted to do. He tried to embarrass Trump, and he knows damn well the law doesn't support it. That's my non legal take. Now I know I'm partial to Trump because I worked for him, but that's the way I see it, Brad. I mean, I gotta tell you, this is just a lot of junk. You know, junk science. This is junk law. I, I think it could be right. And on the question of the disclosure, you know, before the election, you're right that the reports would not actually have been filed till after yeah. the election. Yeah. Again, I think the theory they're working on, I want to give them every credit, you know, you can, is, well, yeah, but if he hadn't paid the money, Stormy Daniels would have started blabbing before the election, and therefore he was still trying to influence the election. You know, it, but but you're right. It certainly takes out at that point. I don't know. I, I just I just like you, I'm just stunned by the, the weakness of this particular case on a whole number of fronts. And again, you know, my interest really is in, in you know, proper interpretation of campaign finance law. Mm-hmm. My, my professional career has been built around that. Yeah, no, it's important. I want you to be I want you to be objective. That's why we had you on the on our Fox business show where you you did great. Look, you know, it's Andy McCarthy. Uh, I don't think he necessarily wants Trump to be president. Andy's just, you know, I read him because he's such he's so good uh, as a former prosecutor and his written work is so good. But I'm listening, you know, like Jonathan Turley, who really isn't political, you know, from George Washington University. You may have seen him on the air. He's he's not even political. And and he's saying the same thing. So I I just interests me that and on the uh, on the other side of the aisle, on the liberal left side of the aisle, uh, I'm sure there's some people out there trying to make the case for Bragg, but I haven't seen many. I mean, I think the world was stunned at how weak it was and how weak Bragg's um, news conference was. And you know what disappoints me, though, Larry, is that 
nobody uh, I mean, there are there are some Democratic lawyers and stuff who have come out pretty aggressively saying this is really overreach. But but where's the prominent Democratic politician? You know, one Democratic senator or prominent member of the House is mm-hmm. going to come out and say, we've got to stop this ever, never escalating warfare, which involves, you know, denigrating the rule of law and mm-hmm. everything else. You know, where is one person who will come out and say that? And it's disappointing to me that we haven't seen that person yet. That's a great it's an important point. Because you, this thing is going to, it's going to fall into this abyss where Republican county, uh, not even federal, Brad, but Republican county DAs uh, are going to start making cases against, you know, public, higher office, public Democrats. Um, yeah, well, envision, envision this example. What, what if Alabama passed a law saying it's a violation of the Alabama penal code to commit an impeachable offense while holding federal office? Mm. So then some DA down in Alabama starts prosecuting Biden, alleging he's committed some impeachable offense, even though, you know, the House hasn't voted on it, the Senate hasn't convicted him. Then they start pursuing criminal violations against yeah. them. You know, you can't do that. And to me, that's kind of what they're trying to do up here in New York, what Bragg is trying to do. And, I know. But you're probably right. Bragg probably just wanted the initial headlines. And, and you know, note, note that this isn't even going to have a next another court hearing until December. So, But I, th- I do think Trump has a point, a key point, the politicalization of the judicial system. It's just not good. It's not good. It's not what we want. Uh, anyway, Bradley Smith, can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, former chairman of the Federal Election uh, Commission back in 2004, uh, teaching law at Capital University. Uh, appreciate everything. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to have a good long look at the economy. What's going on? Inflation, recession, jobs, king dollar. We'll do it all for half hour, for heaven's sakes. I'm Cudlow. Stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. Let's talk about the economy. We just talked about the Trump fiasco. Let's go to the economy with, we got Michael Falkender, professor of finance at the University of Maryland. He's a chief economist at the America First Policy Institute and former assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy, and John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. John Carney, uh, what did you learn from the employment report yesterday? It's kind of menza menza. What did you think? So I thought that it was good enough to support the idea that the Fed is going to hike again. This is the last employment report that the Fed will be able to see before its next meeting in early May. And 236,000 jobs is a lot. I mean, Larry, when you were in the White House, you would have been quite happy with 236,000. It's cooler than we had in February or January, but it is still a quite hot jobs number and the unemployment rate fell. I think Fed officials have to look at that and say, we are not getting a fast enough cool down in the labor market to satisfy their desire to have less demand for employment. You know, I was reading your uh, piece on uh, on uh, Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed, uh, who is pretty hawkish. Uh, what about, let me just ask, though, to follow up, let's see, average hourly earnings 
for production workers, 0.3 in March, 0.4 in February, 0.3. So 4.2% annually for the last three months, 5.1% for the last 12 months. So uh, wages are cooling down. Of course, they're underneath the inflation rate, but wages uh, look like they're cooling down. Does that play a role in this or no? It does, and it's helpful that they're cooling down. But again, as you just said, 4.2% is far from being consistent with 2% inflation. Mm. And so the Fed has a long way to go. Uh, I don't think that this means they have to necessarily keep hiking as far as the eye can see. I do think that the current built-in expectations into things like the Fed Funds futures market don't really make sense. They see they, they, they did move a little on these jobs numbers. They, they now favor a hike at the next meeting, and before it was about evenly split. They're moving, uh, but they still think that – so it, right now built into the numbers is a hike at the May meeting, a pause at the June meeting, and then cuts for the rest of the year. That, to me, is not really in the cards unless we get – some, you know, dramatic shift in the numbers, but I don't see that happening. Mike Falkender, you know, you're still, even with a 3.5% unemployment rate, you still, your participation rates are still low. Your employment to population ratio is still low. You know, we're quite, and, and also, Mike, if you look at the uh, participation rate for prime age, whatever it is, 25 to 54 or something, that thing is still a couple of points below the peak uh, of years ago. I mean, what's up with that? We, we've never really gotten back to peak rates. There's just too many people that are still out there don't seem to want to work. I agree with you, but the, the uh, prime labor force participation rate is where it was prior to the pandemic. So one does question so you're right. It's at 83 right now. The peak was at 84 and a half or so mm. a, a number of years ago. But with the aging of the population, we're never going to get the labor force participation rate back to where it was prior to the pandemic. You know, I mean, with the baby boomers in prime retirement years, we're, we're looking at a structural reduction in both the employment population ratio and the, the, the average labor force participation rate for adults, which is why, just as you did, I've been focusing more on the prime one. But let me go back to the Fed. I'm, I'm hearing more and more discussion about whether they're going to revisit the 2% target. Oh, and so, oh. you know, are they are they going to really bring it down to 2%? Um, you know, that statement they put out where they revised monetary policy projections to now do average inflation targeting, clearly that's out the out the window because, you know, with the if they want to get down to an average of 2% over the last couple of years, they've got to bring it down well below 2% and they can't even get it to 2. So, I wonder whether they're going to revisit, and I'm hearing more people talk about, will they give up on getting down to 2% because the impact that even higher rates would have, not only on the economy, but also remember the losses that SVB took, the Fed is taking as well. Right. Their portfolio is underwater. Yes, it is. Mark to market. Mark to market, the Fed's insolvent. Correct. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? It's just going to be a bookkeeping entry until rates get back to an upward sloping yield curve. But until then, they're going to no longer contribute to the Treasury. And so that's a reduction. That's an even further reduction in, in federal income receipts. 
Jay Powell will be the worst CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank in history. <laughs> well, I, I've been talking to more and more people about how, you know, how much are you going to fault SVB for doing exactly what the Fed itself is? Right. That's, that's, that's a great story. It, it's, I know. It's a bookkeeping entry. Uh, and what, what do they call it? The, the, deferred assets? I mean, they don't, they don't have to mark to market. But, no, they're just going to take a negative equity position, and it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> I just love that. I mean, that really shows the, the paucity of knowledge here. Um, John Carney, manufacturing is definitely in a recession, and housing, which may or may not be coming back, but it's still in a recession too. But the manufacturing interests me a lot because that's so important to the economy. I know everybody says consumer spending is two-thirds of GDP and blah, blah, 70%, but actually – you look under the hood of these GDP accounts, it's business-to-business uh, activity that really matters, and that stuff has been slumping badly, and manufacturing is the root cause of it. So we may be closer to recession than people think. Manufacturing is definitely in a recession, and and it, and it seems to be deepening. We're still losing. So even these months where we're adding a lot of jobs overall, we're losing manufacturing jobs. If you look at the survey data, that shows that, you know, we've been in contraction for five months in manufacturing. All of the Fed regional surveys have been deeply underwater for quite some time. So, yes, and manufacturing is also tends to be a bellwether for the rest of the economy, right. whereas the services sector can hold up for a little longer. You see a decline in manufacturing before you see a decline in other parts of the economy. And as you said, Housing, yes, I, you know, I've been writing. Housing seems to have bottomed, but it is not, you know, and maybe it's trending up a little, but it, we're still in a very low activity uh, area in the housing sector right now. So we have two major parts of the economy that are slumping. It's very, and you know, and then all the other indicators we talk about all the time, uh, you know, the leading economic indicators, the, the inversion of the yield curve, all tell us yes, a downturn is coming. But the amazing thing that keeps happening, and par- partly because of these jobs numbers we were just talking about, is that that date keeps getting pushed further and further away. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought we'd be in it in the first or second quarter. That now looks unlikely that we'll have a recession then. So we're talking third quarter maybe. Most likely, I think now, fourth quarter or first quarter of next year. Mike Falkender, if you are still the, the top economist in the Treasury Department, which is a very lofty position and we were having our uh, meetings with uh, Kevin Hassett and me and and you uh, and even Mnuchin. Uh, what would your recession outlook, what would you be advising us? I'm with John. You know, it, it, is, it keeps coming back to when are households going to finish burning through the money that they accumulated during oh, the uh, right. pandemic? Mm. You know, they, more and more of them are hitting credit card debt limits. But and we've been watching that checking and savings accounts deposits at banks have been slowly declining. You know, mm. there was about a 40 percent increase between the end of 2019 and 2022. That number so has started to come down, probably hasn't come down enough yet. And so people are still spending the money on restaurants, vacations and services. Mm. It's when that spending stops, mm. it will hit a recession. And we will. Right, because when you've got negative real wages and you've got savings rates where they're at, a lot of households are burning through the cash that they have accumulated. The question is, when will they burn through enough of it that they'll be forced to pull back? 
and we'll get the inevitable recession. It'll be shallow, but we will get it because people will pull back because the current spending levels are unsustainable in a negative real wage environment. John, John Carney, before we take a break, um, I want to go back to your favorite and, my, and become my favorite inflation indicator, which is the median CPI from the Cleveland Fed, which is still, whatever, 7%, 7% plus. Uh, that's still a high number. So I just, you know, I know there are a lot of numbers. CPI is still 6%. I don't know what the uh, now cast forecast is for the Cleveland Fed. Maybe one of you guys can look that up while we're on because uh, we'll get those numbers next week for the CPI, what their forecast is. But still, John, there's a lot of inflation in the system, which is killing uh, wages and living standards and so forth. Food prices uh, are still very, very strong. Uh, you look at food a lot. I mean, I think that, you know, if the Fed throws a towel in, that would be a huge mistake, just a huge mistake. I think that's right. So what we're what we've been seeing in, uh, is that particularly the median, the month to month median inflation hasn't come down at all. It has been 0.4 percent for since September. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went up to 0.6 percent in January, but we can just ignore that. Let's say that was a year end fluke. But or beginning of the year fluke. So now we have uh, basically steady median inflation. If you look at the uh, the Cleveland Fed Dowcast, that's predicting uh, core CPI of zero point four five percent. So oh. again, no real change huh. in the uh, you know in core numbers. It's predicting around the same for April. I mean, it's very early to, you know, look at the April uh, number. But the but what, so what we're seeing is inflation hasn't really come down. We will next week uh, get some deceptive numbers because the headline CPI number will be lower uh, because of the base effect. Remember, last year, Putin invaded Ukraine. Oh. Energy prices went through the roof. Right. So we will get some confusing numbers in the headline number, but if you look at some of these underlying measures, you're still going to see inflation is running pretty hot. Yeah, it's a tricky story. You probably have to watch the three-month change rather than the 12-month change. That's right. Uh, which reminds me, what happens, uh, Mike Falkender, the oil story, so OPEC made its production cut announcement, and both Brent and WTI they both bumped up about five dollars, so the w- West Texas Intermediate is about eighty bucks, and uh, Brent crude, uh, your European crude, is about eighty-five bucks. Um, I, that will be in this number, I guess. Gasoline prices have edged up too, but it doesn't. I mean, Mike, how much? What is the oil price threat now with with the Saudis and the Russians taking uh, whatever million barrels off the market? Uh, if I remember correctly, though, the, the OPEC cut was on April 2nd, so it won't be in next week's number. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It'll, be in the, it'll be in the next one. But, you know, even even if we look at that three-month number and annualize it, we're still running above 4% inflation. And if we, as the NowCast suggests, come in at 0.4.5 inflation for the month and you've got a 0.3% hourly earnings growth, you've got yet another month of real wage declines. Mm. So that that continues. So even if the 12-month num- headline number comes down because we, we lose the oil price increase that we saw 12 months ago upon the invasion of Ukraine, um, 
that's going to continue, and it's just going to continue to the oil price pressure is just going to continue to rise when we start getting into summer driving months. Mm-hmm. So we've still got more inflation on the horizon, as we've seen the food inflation persists because the lag of it showing up. Remember, as we talked about before, the fuel then leads to fertilizer, then yeah. leads to price increases on food, yeah. and so all of that continues unabated, um, which is why I I question whether, as I said before, whether the Fed can stick with a 2% inflation in target mm. given some of the damages that higher interest rates are, are doing elsewhere. And so I wonder if that's their out. I'll tell you, if that if they give up the target, the 2% target, uh, Jay Powell is going to be smashed, crushed, dissected in his hearings before the House uh, Financial Services Committee. He won't do much better in the Senate either, but the House will just crunch him. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not rooting for it. I'm just saying it's interesting that more people are talking about it. Well, I, I like the fact that uh, as a CEO of the largest bank in the United States, he's underwater. <laughs> Larry, I think I think Mike has a very good point here. There's yeah? no way they go to they, they have to give up the average inflation idea. They, they liked that when inflation was under and they were like, well, we, you know, we could get it a little above. There's no way they can actually do average 2% now that we've been above for yeah, so long yeah. because that would be 1% or less yeah. for, of, for inflation for quite a while. And they can't get there. I mean, I will just say there's no way to get average down to 2%. What wow. they're really aiming for right now is 2% as a floor. They want to hit that, but they're never they're not going to try to average it anymore. I think that framework is out the window. Yeah, that was Rich Clarity's idea. He's a friend of mine. He's a smart guy, but that was a really lousy idea, average inflation. Anyway, kids, we're going to take a break. We're talking to Michael Falkender, who's uh, teaching school at the University of Maryland. He was the former assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economics. And we got John Carney of Breitbart News. By the way, folks, the Breitbart Business Digest, that is a must-read Every day, the guy cranks it out, and he's become a regular star on a Fox Business show called Cudlow. Oops, I'm Cudlow. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. <clears throat> I'm Larry Cudlow. Got a little frog in my throat. The pollen count here is like off the charts. I think it's 80. Anyway, we're with Michael Falkender, uh, former assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policies, teaching economics at the University of Maryland. He's also the chief economist of America First Policy Institute. And the great John Carney from Breitbart News, co-author of the Breitbart Business uh, Digest. So, gentlemen, um, John Carney, I think... I love you. Love, love, love. But I think you're overreacting on the dollar. <laughs> I, <think so. laughs> I mean, I went back. I went back. I, well, here, let's start with what we know. For some reason, despite Fed tightening, the dollar has been declining almost 15% since October, which is interesting because the Fed's been tightening. Um, and the price of gold has soared. Almost twenty percent. It's now over two thousand bucks. So that's a weak dollar. Okay, I get that. But I went back and looked at the uh, in terms of the big picture ch- competition from the Remnimbi, Yuan, China, or the BRIC countries, or uh, stuff like that. Uh, according to the Bank for International Settlements, uh, 
90% of the world's transactions for everything, goods, services, finance, 90% is done by the dollar. I mean, one side is the dollar. It's about $6.6 trillion worth. Uh, so I, you know, I know reserve currency stuff has slipped a bit for central banks, but that's kind of almost a theoretical thing. The reality is everybody wants to use the dollar. Whether the dollar is merited or not, because of the mismanagement of fiscal and monetary policy, I don't know. But I don't really see a dollar threat. Or let me put it to you differently. King dollar, you want to bring king dollar off his throne. Uh, that's because of lousy homegrown policies. In other words, not China. You know, the I've met the enemy. The enemy is us. And if we have another six years of Joe Biden, there's no telling what will happen. Now, that's the biggest threat. I So what I, what I would say is when when I've talked about this, I'm talking about a much longer term change. It's not something that I see coming this year, next year, or, you know, even in the next five years. But I do see the world dividing up into trading blocks and therefore currency blocks. One of the reasons that the U.S. One of the reasons for King Dollar is that King Dollar, the U.S. government, has been very generous to the rest of the world. We run trade deficits, you know, against every other country practically in the world. And so one of the things that means is they have lots of dollars. And so they trade amongst themselves. You know, you have countries trading with Saudi Arabia. They're using dollars. There are lots of uses of dollars hang, hang in the on. world. John, hang on. Uh, you guys, can, can you guys stay? We're yep. going to have a break. Mike Falkender, uh, John, just stick around. I got to take a quick break. And we'll go another 10, 15 minutes if you have time. Go get a nice cup of coffee, Dunkin' Donuts, that kind of thing. I'm Cudlow. We'll take a break. We're going to back with the uh, King Dollar story and whatever else cooks up. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Mike Falkender and John Carney. So go ahead, John. Go ahead. You were trashing the dollar, right? The dollar is going to be replaced by the Chinese renminbi, which has no property rights and capital controls. And then you're going to replace it also by the BRIC countries, which have been around forever, and I doubt it. Not even the euro replaced the dollar. That used to be the argument. Right. I don't think that they're about to re- – I don't think anything will replace the dollar. I think actually the most successful economies in the world will continue to use the dollar, and all of the free nations of the world will continue to use the dollar. But what, but what we will see – and part of this is, as you said, a result of U.S. policy, although not quite the ones you were naming, which is the U.S. wants to reduce our dependence on China. What this will eventually mean if we succeed at this is that China will end up with fewer dollars. China sees that happening, and they are trying to – and by the way, Russia already has no choice. They can't use a dollar system. We've cut them off from that. So China sees that as an opportunity to build something else. And I do think that over the longer term, we will see the world divide into trading blocks where you'll have China trading with Russia and you and some other countries that will be in its orbit. And then the, and that will be a, a eventual failure. That will not work. And the rest of the world will remain on the dollar system. So what I will say is, Yet it's not the dethroning of King Dollar, but it's the rising of a competing kingdom that we are going to witness. Uh, Mike Falkender, what do you think about that, competing kingdoms? I, 
I, I'm largely in agreement with John in that what will happen is more of the international payments will move into RMB. We already see the Chinese playing a larger role in the Middle East, brokering that deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We see that with Russia trying to still sell its oil largely to China, that they're going to be taking RMB instead of dollars. And so as we kind of move to this bipolar world where we've got, as John said, trading blocks that the U.S. and, and Western countries that have similar labor rights, similar environmental approaches, uh, and that there's a seeking to isolate some of the activities with China, uh, that means that reserve banks are not going to be as dominated in dollars. There's going to be more of a portfolio that's going to also include RMB. So we're just we're going to see ourselves going from 90% of international trade being denominated in dollars to a lower percentage. It's it's never going to get below it, well certainly not in our lifetimes is it going to get below 50 because for the reasons you mentioned there's there's not trust in Chinese economic reports there are capital constraints on money flowing from China and so China is not in a position to fully displace the dollar the euro has had its problem and no other currency regime is anywhere close enough to provide the liquidity that the dollar does but it means that reserve banks are going to have more diversified currency portfolios as opposed to being as dominated by dollars as they are today. You know, and that's going to weaken the dollar. Well, okay, but think about this. If you have, um, so if, if you're uh, Brazil or Argentina or Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> put Russia aside for the moment. Uh, oh, the, Russia owns a lot of dollar reserves. They're frozen right now. But if, you, if you're increasing Remnimbi, RMBs, you know, they uh, – <laughs> What, I don't, what are you going to invest them in? I mean, because China's not an open system. They have capital controls. And China's the one country that would freeze your reserves. You know, these uh, currency reserves in central banks, those are the family jewels. You know, they, they own dollars mostly, but they own some gold. They might own some euros. But they're the family jewels. So you, you invest in RMB, you, you, you may never get them back. I mean, they're going to give you, what, Chinese bonds? You may, you may never get them back. In other words, you don't have the kind. And just as a generic point, not only, not only is China run by a communist party, they have no respect for private property rights. They have no respect for private ownership. Uh, they don't even have any investment vehicles. I mean, there's very little. We tried, you know, with the U.S.-China trade deal. Uh, Mnuchin got a couple of companies in, as I recall, Um investment companies, but that's all. They didn't want banks. I mean, it's a state-controlled economy. So if you invest, one of the things you'll, that ne- you'll never get rise, your money out. One of the things that gave rise to U.S. dollar dominance around the globe was actually the U.S. allowing banks around the world, the euro dollar, to be created. In other words, a lot, we were free enough with our currency that basically European banks can create dollars. We have, you know, dollar uh swap lines with central banks all over the world mm-hmm. 
And we, we've allowed the dollar to become that. The Chinese are never going to give up that level of control. That will limit their, you know, so that so the Russian central bank is never going to be able to authorize Russian banks to lend in Rambibi. Right. That's not going a thing that's going to happen. That will limit their ability to, you know, take over as a, you know, as the leading currency of the world. You're absolutely right. Plus, it, nobody is ever going to trust the Chinese government the way that they trust the U.S. government, in part because they don't have an independent central bank. We actually do have an independent central bank. They answer to the leader of China and the Communist Party. Yeah, I know. So that's they, important. And they don't they have no respect for property rights. Property rights include financial instruments. So if you own run you have R and B in your portfolio, uh let's say you're the central bank of Brazil for argument's sake, or the central bank of South Africa or something. You know, you can own RMB, but you don't know that you'll ever get it. China will freeze that. If you do one thing they don't like, it's a communist-run central bank. I mean, look, I knew the guy that ran it uh, for a bunch of years. He was a good guy. They got rid of him uh, because he was too independent. (laughs) He tried to have independence, and uh, they chopped his head off, metaphorically. They actually chopped his head off, but they replaced him. So that's why I'm so skeptical but I will say this, you know, Mike Falconer, if you, if we keep spending and borrowing and deficit and debt and taxes and regulations, if you take our economy down, the dollar, which is weakening right now again, uh, despite higher rates, um, that'll do great damage to King Dollar, just in terms of the, you know, foreign exchange markets. It'll do great damage to the dollar. That's my biggest concern. It isn't that, you know, it won't be dethroned as a world's reserve currency, but, you know, people won't want a whole dollar. So, you know, the value of the dollar will come down and the inflation rate will go up because everything's priced in dollars. That's the biggest problem I see it. Right. And as we keep running these deficits, we're just going to keep flooding the market with ever more dollars in order to finance it. And so, yes, that's going to to bring down the dollar. I, I agree with you that, there are always going to be concerns about how much long-term RMB-denominated securities you hold because you don't know whether or not you're actually going to be able to get that money back. But mm. as more trade takes place in RMB, there is going to be some portion of reserves that are currently held in dollars that will still that will shift over to RMB mm. in order to facilitate some of that just day-to-day, month-over-month trade with China. You know, if I if I were Brazil and I were receiving, uh, or if I were Saudi Arabia and I were receiving Chinese dollars for purchases of Saudi Arabian oil, how much would I just buy Saudi products immediately versus how much would I hold RMB-denominated securities? I probably wouldn't want the RMB securities for very long because, as you said, they, on a whim, can just decide that they're not going to pay back. But there is going to be a lot of contemporaneous trade with some RMB sitting in reserve to facilitate that just You know, know, we're still running, I mean, despite the hostility with China, we're still running uh, almost a $400 billion trade deficit with China. I mean, I hate to say it, but the uh, phase one U.S.-China trade deal, there's no appreciable difference that I can find. And we put a lot of export controls, obviously, on technology-related stuff because those are the family jewels and, you know, military and national security. But, you know, Mike Falconer, we're still running close to $400 billion. Uh, 
But that, what I always remind people of is that, remember, the current account deficit is equal to the capital account surplus. Yes. And as long as we keep running multi-trillion dollar deficits, the portion that is not financed by greater money supply, because the Fed has been, the Fed has brought way down money supply growth recently, which means all of it's getting financed. And so to the extent that it's financed, and, and we have a very low personal savings rate in the U.S., which means it's got to come from abroad mm. that you're financing the budget deficit. And some of that's going to come from China. And so rather than buying our goods, they're going to buy our financial securities, and that creates a, a current account deficit. Yep, absolutely right. That's a really key point. There's two sides to that trade. The current account is the capital account, and then there's the trading account. Very important point. All right, kids, you're terrific for staying over. John Carney of Breitbart Business Digest and Michael Falkender, University of Maryland and the America First Policy Institute, formerly top economist at the Treasury Department. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to come back and talk about Janet Yellen's fanciful plan to send out IRS agents all across the country. Beware, folks. The IRS is coming after you. I'm Cudlow. Larry Cudlow. Now back to the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. So there's a story out there. It's really interesting. Uh, my pal Iris Stahl, uh, futureofcapitalism.com, and he writes for the New York Sun. There's a fabulous story out there where Joe Biden and uh, his Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, and they're cooking up this IRS plan, okay? They're going to spend $80 billion, right? That was in the inflation Reduction Act, the so-called misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, $80 billion. I don't know how many new uh, IRS agents they want to put in there, uh, like 75,000, 80,000, I don't know. But get this, they are assuming that over the next 10 years, this is a budget item, over the next 10 years, these new IRS agents are going to find, get this, find $7 trillion of unpaid taxes or uncollected tax revenues, right? $7 trillion. So it's over $600 billion per year. This is just incredible. Uh, and there's no evidence of this. There's a couple of papers that they're relying on, academic papers, that, um, by the way, don't really say that, but the Treasury is trying to make them say that or trying to interpret them to say that. Uh, but they don't, they don't definitively show anything. This is just all hypothetical nonsense. Hypothetical nonsense. And then of the seven trillion dollars, of the seven trillion dollars that they think they're going to collect, they're going to use the money. This is from Yellen. They're going to use the money to spend on climate change, other social welfare benefits, and then curbing prescription drug prices. So they're going to substitute government subsidies, I guess, because of uh, cutting drug prices, uh, which was initiated in the Inflation Reduction Act and elsewhere. Now, who who do you think they, they say constantly? They say that they, being the Yellens and the Bidens and that crowd, they say 
that they're going to go after wealthy people who are, you know, dodging their taxes, right? evil rich people, evil rich people. But the reality is every time this has been tried, every time, it isn't the rich who get hit. It's the middle class and the lower class, okay? Now, that number $7 trillion is a fantasy, $7 trillion in uncollected tax revenues. It's an absolute fantasy, all right, absolute fantasy. But the reality is, and this has been proven, you've had estimates from the right-of-center tax foundation and the left-of-center uh, Brookings Institute Tax Policy Center. They have said many times that the people that are going to get hit the most are not the rich. It's going to be the middle and lower middle income people. Right? They're the ones. Okay. The, the, the reality is you couldn't possibly collect $7 trillion from just the wealthiest people, which, by the way, so-called uncollected revenues has to do with things like capital gains taxes, which are unrealized. Right? You don't have you, you don't pay the capital gains, which the Bidens, by the way, have jacked up the capital gains tax, even though it's dead on arrival in the House. Okay, it's not going to happen. But if right now you don't pay capital gains unless you sell an asset, right? And then you pay the tax on the sale. And they want to double the tax, roughly from twenty to forty percent. In fact, in some cases, it'll be higher than that, be about 45% because of the surcharge on the very richest of the rich. But you don't pay that. The only place they're going to find stuff is lower middle class people, all right? Uh, wage and salary earners, people that own their own small businesses, like Chapter S, wholly owned proprietorships. Uh, some, I know some of those are big companies, but so many of them, are small businesses. Uh, you know, they're like electricians, uh, carpenters, um, you know, people, uh, uh, Ubers, that kind of thing. These are not rich people. And they might make a mistake in their tax forms uh, or they didn't file something they should have filed. But those are the ones that the IRS always winds up going after. These are folks that don't have fancy lawyers. They don't have the highest price tax accountants. It's the middle class folks that will always get hurt the most. And this idea that there's seven trillion of uncollected revenues out there, okay? Um, all right. You finally found Tomas. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. So uh, Tomas Phillipson's University of Chicago, he finally showed up. I don't know. I was having fun talking about this. Um <laughs> From uh, and uh, he was the chief uh, uh, head of the uh, President Trump's uh, Council of Economic Advisors. So, Tomas, I don't know where the hell you were, but actually, I want you to weigh in on this. This is this idea. It's what I've been talking about. We can get to prescription drugs in a minute, but the idea here is, in the Biden budget and Janet Yellen, they feel they have seven trillion dollars of uncollected tax revenues. All right, it's over six hundred billion per year for the next 10 years, and they're going to take this money and spend it on stuff like climate change or curbing prescription drug prices or other social welfare programs, and they're going to find this $7 trillion, Tomas Phillipson, uh, 
uh, from rich people, right? Only the you know richest people are going to pony up. Now, what do you think of this? I mean, this is a massive boondoggle spending plan they have through the IRS, you know, which is uh, getting an eighty billion dollar new budget. What do you think of that, Thomas Phillipson? Well, I think the issue is, I think, the debt that this is going to incur, right? So they are basically, with the spending they want, they are scheduled to go from roughly 100% of debt held by the public to ballparkish 200% of the debt of the GDP held by the public. So we go from 100 to 200% of GDP of debt. Mm. Now, if you think about how much taxes do you need to just stay afloat mm. for, at 100%, you would need 10% of GDP per year just to stay at 100% of, of GDP to avoid going to 200, right, for 10 years, right? 10 times 10 is 100. Mm-hmm. So you need 10% of GDP to, to collect an extra revenue to stay at 100% of GDP, now, how much is that relative to what we currently collect? We collect about 20% currently of GDP in taxes. So that would be a 50% increase <laughs> in tax revenue to just stay afloat at 100% of GDP in debt. And that's the real issue which we, in terms of the spending that they're planning. Which we won't. We're not, yeah, I mean, the way they're no, going. No, there's no chance. We're, go, we're, yeah. I don't, we're going 150%. Maybe more. But look at this. These numbers, uh, GDP is about $26 trillion. Um, federal government spending last year, 2022, was $6.3 trillion. Uh, it's going to be, cl- it's going to be close to, by their own budget. Uh, it's going to be cl- close to $7 trillion this year. They want another $7 trillion in uncollected tax revenue, which Tomas, they then believe they will spend. This is the part I love. They could never get this through Congress, but they think they're going to find this revenue, hold on to it, not go to Congress, hold on to it, and spend it on more climate change, curbing prescription drug prices, and uh, social more social welfare benefits without work requirements. This is from a great piece by my pal Iris Stoll who writes for the New York Sun, and his own website is futureofcapitalism.com. Where's that, Tomas Philipson, where's that $7 trillion going to come from? Who's, whose number? No, no, I mean, That's I a, a made-up number. I call Democrats selective economists because they think incentives matter when it helps them, but they don't think incentives matter when they, it hurts them. So the tax base, if you're going to do this on the rich, is going to shrink dramatically. They probably, there's no way they're going to be able to collect this on the rich, right? So incentives matter for them when we, let's say, expand welfare program. Then a lot of more people go on the rolls because it's cheaper, et cetera. Then incentives are really important. But when it comes to taxes, it's not incentives. Incentives are not important, according to these guys, because the tax base, they assume, is going to remain the same when you tax people more. Well, it won't. And that's going to fall. No, but it's selective economics. (laughs) It's selective economics to basically enforce whatever view you have and thinking that incentives only operate on one side of the ledger when you spend, but not on the other when you tax. Yeah, it'll shrink the economy. Anyway, Tomas Phillipson, University of Chicago, former CA chair. 
We had to wake him up to find him. I'm Cudlow. We're going to come <laughs> back to the other side of the break. We're going to talk about the stock market on the other side of the break. Go back to sleep, Tomas. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us on the Internet, by the way, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. Be heard all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And by the way, join us on Fox Business Network Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. And uh, if you can't hear us at 4, then just text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. So let's do some stock market work. Great fun, <laughs> I guess. Stocks were kind of nothingheimer this week, pretty close to flat. Uh, gold is strong. The dollar is weak. Interest rates, interest rates came back. No, 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 I am wrong. Interest rates fell all all across the spectrum. The 10-year note, 339. How about that? With an inflation rate of somewhere between 4 and 6%. Anyway, let's go to our distinguished guest, Jack Berugian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and uh, Notre Dame Football or something like that. Anyway, gentlemen, welcome Let's go do interest rates. What's going on here? Jack Bruggen, what's interest? So I got a deeply inverted yield curve. Three-month Treasury bill is 475. The Fed funds rate, what's the Fed funds rate? Four and three-quarters to five. I got a two-year note uh, just below four. I got a 10-year note at 339. And I got a 30-year note, 30-year bond at 361. That's very deeply inverted yield curve. What does that mean, Jack? What's that mean, and how long is it going to last? Larry, I was always taught that that the bond traders were smarter than the stock traders. <laughs> you know, that was the one thing that was always pressed into my mind at all times. And the reason was because there's a lot more debt out there than, than there really is in equity exposure, if you think about it in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, the, the other part of that equation is that you have got a, a – a very, very tricky situation. You've got monetary policy and fiscal policy that are diametrically at odds with one another. Mm. You have got a Fed that is draining and tightening and trying to fight inflation. And you've got policy coming out of D.C. that is stepping on the accelerator and spending trillions. Mm. That is creating a very uncomfortable situation for the market. Now, you know, people say, well, with the market's rallying, yeah, but that yield curve is telling you something. It's telling you that something is going to break. Again, I don't know what it is. I don't know when it's going to be. But the longer that the yield curve stays inverted like that, the more dangerous it gets for the equity market. And, and you know, that's the one thing that concerns me about the, the fixed income market more than anything else right now. That's an interesting point. Something's going to break, Jeff Gilbert. Uh, this is a very strange situation. And um, to me, it's got a lot of risk in it. But 
Markets, you know, markets are markets. So what do you make of this? Is something going to break? Are we talking banks? Are we talking companies? Uh, what are we talking about here? Well, I think it's a one-two punch. And, and Jackie is right for sure that, you know, the bond market does provide leadership. And the smartest guys, being Jack and myself, who traded bonds at the Chicago Board of Trade, we like to say we're the smartest guys. Uh, but nonetheless, Larry, I think what we're seeing in the yield curve, it's been dramatic. And we're in a historic moment in time. We've never seen the rate normalization process that the Fed induced. Because, and why did they have to raise rates so high in such a dramatic, spastic manner? Because they had rates at zero for too long. They were buying assets up until you know February of 2022. So this is the Fed's mistake. We put way too much faith in the Fed. Mm. The Fed talked about inflation being transitory. But what I think actually is going to break, and I think you're going to disagree, so I'm just going to get everyone ready for this. But I think actually inflation is breaking. I think it's going to abate faster. And that's the one-two punch we saw. The two-year note, which was above 5%, tucked under 4%. The 10-year note actually traded 3.25%, almost a full 100 basis points lower than where it's been. So I think it's a one-two punch with the Silicon Valley Bank and some of the regional banks. I'm not going to call it a crisis. I think it was isolated. those horribly mismanaged treasury books by a bunch of novice bond traders. But I think inflation and the data needs to support this. I think inflation is breaking and that's what's going on. But I actually am more cautiously optimistic about equities because the interest rate treasury curve is coming lower it's going to allow some of these tech names to continue to run in 2023 well look at i don't necessarily disagree that inflation is going to break i i I think it's been coming down uh the question i suppose is the timing of it but jack the question is if you you're basically going from nine percent inflation plus nine plus inflation uh your summer is around four or five percent maybe six percent now i don't know but let's say Inflation continues to come down. What is the economic impact of that? What is the earnings, profits impact of that? It's real simple, Larry. The market's way too expensive then. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to see earnings retraction. You're going to see a multiple retraction. It's inevitable. And, And look, what you just described is a disinflationary spiral, which is probably one of the Fed's biggest nightmares. It's 1990s Japan. You know, believe it or not, a stagflation scenario might be the best of all possible worlds for us coming out of this you know, this, this ridiculous situation that the Fed and D.C. have created for us. So I, I, I guess the real question is, you know, and, and by the way, Jeff, you're spot on. You know, if you look at some of these commodity markets, and Jeff and I are very sensitive to them, you see that. You look at natural gas. It's moved from $9 to $2. Mm-hmm. You, know, you look at lumber now, you know, back down to $4. You look at some of these commodities, copper, back down to $4. These are, these are the, the commodities that everybody was complaining about. Soybeans. You, you've got more soybeans being flooded out of Brazil into China over the course of the last month than ever before in history. Hmm. Now, that hasn't even hit the markets yet, but it's telling you something. It's telling you that supply chains are changing, but more importantly, they're intact. And what you you just described, that disinflationary scenario is more than likely going to hit the top and bottom line of most corporations. And if that's the case, again, we're looking at a PE on the S&P 500 that is probably 10 to 20% too high. Mm. What about oil, Jeff? <laughs> well, we kind of saw that one coming as soon as uh 
someone's administration stated that they weren't going to buy oil the next couple of years. So we kind of saw that one coming uh, from a mile away. We knew uh, that prices were going to go higher well, as soon as we have uh, administration folks starting to trade crude oil futures. But <laughs> nonetheless, I, I think that you know that was kind of a you know a smack in the face. But it really speaks to the fact that oil is going to continue to move higher. Mm. Uh, I really have a hard time measuring it, and I don't know how, how the rest of uh, the investment community is measuring this reopening of China, specifically with all the political tensions going on. But I do think the demand part of the equation will also keep oil stabilizing above $80. But right here, right now, it really kind of reveals the fact that we are not going to see oil go much lower, either politically driven or demand driven. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Jack, you've got people talking about $100 oil because of the, so, because of the OPEC plus production cuts. Uh, $100 oil with a weak economy doesn't make sense to me. I know, you know, it, it doesn't right. make sense. I mean, the OPEC, OPEC doesn't always get it right. I mean, they, they haven't, because of our stupidity and we've shut down the fossil fuel spigots, uh, we've given them too much damn power. I get that. So you got $5 jump right after the announcement of the, um, of the production cutbacks. What was it? A million barrels a day plus. Uh, but you got all these people talking about a hundred. How do we get to a hundred in a weak economy? Well, first of all, it's not going to happen unless you're a big oil bull and you're living back in the 1970s again. And yeah. that, you know, OPEC has got that kind of power. First, here, here are a couple of little, you know, misunderstood things about OPEC. Number one, it's an illegal cartel. Yeah, number two, you know, it is, it is, they are notorious for cheating amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. They really do not care, okay? And number three, you have got probably one of the biggest off OPEC producers, all right, which is Russia, doing these off-plats transactions. They're flooding the market mm-hmm. in ways that we don't even know, and that's how they're supplying their war against Ukraine. So if you, if you factor all of that in, you can really see that there's this battle taking place in oil. The other thing I'll say about oil, by the way, and, and just kind of touched on it. You know, the Biden administration came out originally when they started to you know, take out the SPR and say that they were going to buy it back at $65 and lower. Well, you know how low oil got? It got down to sixty-five mm-hmm. seventeen. Mm-hmm. All right, because all of us had our bids, and I'm sure Jeff did too. We all had our bids in at sixty-five dollars, knowing that these idiots told us they were going to start buying it at sixty-five dollars. All right, instead of going out and buying it and then announcing that they had started replenishing the SPR. So again, sometimes you feel as if idiots are running our government. I mean, I hate to say it that oh, way. Gee. But, you know, oh, gee. Oh, shucks. Know, but I'm, I'm going to come right out. Oh, Jack. It's killing me. Oh, it's gee whiz. Me. You know, a little common sense would, would go a long oh, way. Oh, you're so tough on them. You mean socialism doesn't work? Well, here in Chicago, we just elected a communist. A socialist would be a step up. <laughs> How the hell did you guys? All right, let's talk about that for a minute, Okay. I know it has nothing to do with the stock market. Jeff Kilberg, how did this happen in Chicago? It's such a, I love Chicago. When I was with Bear Stearns for so many years, we had a huge office in Chicago. I'd go out there six, seven, eight times a year. I loved it. I'd walk up North Michigan Avenue, one of the greatest shopping place, maybe the best shopping place in the whole United States. I love staying at those lovely hotels, the Ritz Carlton and the Four Seasons. What the hell? How could you guys? You elected somebody that's going to bring the whole city down. It's like the death of Chicago. 
You know what, Larry? It's so perplexing, but it's just so disheartening. Chicago, born and raised in Chicago. Chicago is just a beautiful, beautiful place. Yes. Uh, we took a ton of pride, you know, revamping Lincoln Park and the zoo and the lakefront back in the 90s and 2000s. And it's just so sad to see what's transpired. And when you, when you talk about it, we'll see if it comes to fruition. They're talking about raising taxes. You mm. worry about the debt downgrades on the municipal bonds associated with the state of Illinois oh. and the state of Chicago if we see this upgrade in tax collection because we know companies and corporations are going to be running for the hill. They're actually talking about instituting a $1 to $2 security tax. Mm -hmm. What few traders are left and what's left at the CBOE and Chicago Mercantile Exchange, see in Florida. I mean, Jack, get the sunscreen, right? Here we go because it's so exciting to see what's transpiring. The teachers union, the teachers union finance this guy. The most left wing, I swear the teachers union is the most left wing socialist cancel culture aspect of this country right now. That's what this going on. And that that poor guy, the I mean he was kind of like a pseudo Republican. What what was the final was it fifty one forty nine? Was that the final tally? It was fifty it was fifty one forty nine. And and when you talk about the teachers, remember this is a guy that spent four years as a teacher and is getting a full pension. Mm. All right. Four years. And, and it's, 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 yes, that's, see, that is really the, the, the thing about Chicago that people don't understand. The layering of pensions. That's mm, how, yeah. and the entitlements, and it is, it is one of the things that is killing. And it's also, can I tell you what, in another few years, there'll be a textbook written about the failure of progressive politics. Oh, in yeah. Chicago, Chicago will be a case study. I'm going to co-author it. I'm going to co-author that book. What we have seen over the course of the last four years, all right, when when Rahm Emanuel passed over the city, and I thought Rahm was pretty extreme to the left, but he was trying hard. But when he turned the city over to Lori Lightfoot, Lori Lightfoot put it on on life life support, all right? This guy is actually going to pull the plug. Yeah, this guy's to the left. He's to the left. We're not even talking about the violent crime issues. I mean, that's going to be amplified moving forward. Hard to believe it could increase. In the city of Chicago, how far? But, uh, unfortunately, how far is South Bend, Indiana, from Chicago? That's just hometown. For so Notre Dame, Notre Dame will survive, Jeff. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Marcus Freeman has the direction going right. In, uh, All right, South Bend, we got to take a quick break. <laughs> just, I know it doesn't have anything to do. We don't care stock markets, Chicago <laughs> politics, whatever. Jack Perugian is the chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Jeff Kilberg's the CEO of KKM Financial. They're both very old and dear friends of mine. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. I want to talk about high, high gold and a low dollar. Next up on Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Jack Perusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Uh, start with Jack. Dollar down, gold up. I can think since, I don't know, on the chart since late October or some such, the dollar's off almost 15%, gold up nearly 20%. I got gold at 2007, closing on Friday. That's a big number for gold. And the dollar, the dollar, what's the dollar? 102. Uh, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it was as high as about 113, 114. So what's going on, Jack? 
two things are driving this. I mean, you know, obviously the, the negative correlation between the, the dollar strength and uh, or weakness, I should say, and the, uh, and the price of gold going up. Uh, I mean, that's something to expect and, and remember. It. Things are, are dollar denominated for those that don't understand out there. So, if, you know, uh, if the dollar goes down and, and everything stays the same, in turn, it, it, it essentially goes up in value in dollars. So, so that's one of the things that we see happening. The other thing is a little bit more detailed and a little bit more nefarious, believe it or not. There's an arbitrage taking place. Yeah. You know, we talk about how, uh, you know, China and Russia and everybody's now starting to use renminbi. They're starting to use, uh, you know, whatever. They're using something outside of the dollar. No, they're not. Mm. What they're doing is they're doing an arbitrage immediately for gold. And oh. it's gold is becoming a currency. Yeah. Wow. People, so that's the way people are accepting the renminbi out there. That's mm. the way they're accepting a ruble out there. They are basically taking no risk if they can, and they're immediately taking a, an arbitrage into gold. Mm. Now, as long as we see that taking place, there's going to be a floor for gold and a demand for gold, even if we see dollar strength. Mm. So, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of gold right now. That is so interesting. Uh, right. So they, they get renminbi – uh, or rubles, and they get out of them and go into gold. That's well, think sad. about it. If you're if you're if you're BP, would you, would you want to hold renminbi or, yeah. or, or rubles? Right. Of course not. There's... You know, and even if you're going through a, a second or third arm, which in many cases they are, uh, you make sure that the conversion and the arbitrage mm-hmm. takes place before it comes back home. Jeff Kelberg, yeah, makes like, a lot of sense. You like gold? No, very. I do, but, you know, quick question or a quick observation that really kind of explains Jack's explanation of gold explains the disconnect in silver. The last time we saw gold up around 2000 silver was $37. Silver's mm-hmm. trained at 25 so that disconnect is absolutely explained. But I think it's just fascinating to see people are really struggling to get a better understanding. You know, they started buying treasuries hand over fist. The dollar index, to your point, came lower. Mm-hmm. And here we are going into earnings seasons, right? We have earnings season. You're going to see the banks, which are kind of battered and bruised, kicking off this Friday. But we have 25 days until the next Fed meeting. So mm-hmm. here we are back in this conundrum trying to better understand where can you find a bit of a safe haven? Because the safe haven really has, it's been, uh, you know, who moved my cheese? We're trying to figure out where the actual safe haven is. But I do like gold there. I think there's more room to run. But it is interesting to see silver at such a deep discount here at $25. Maybe there's an opportunity for silver to kind of high tide rise all boats. Last one, uh, the best performing asset I can find year to date up 68.7% is... Ready for it? Bitcoin. 27,897 Bitcoin. Load, you buying Bitcoin, Jack Perusian? Uh, I'm not. And for those that have got it, God bless. Hope you enjoy it. You know, hope you enjoy the ride up, enjoy the ride down. It's like riding a roller coaster. You won't see me on one of those ever again. Jeff, bit, uh, but, uh, bit Bitcoin and the Notre Dame endowment, Bitcoin? <laughs> Look, I love the Golden Dome, but uh, Bitcoin, you know, I think you kind of cherry-picked that number from year to date. You look at a one-year, it's down 50%, Larry, so no Bitcoin for me right now. I still right. like blockchain, though. All right, fellas, you're both terrific. Jack Berusian and Jeff Kilberg. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and we have Monica Crowley and Liz Peake to talk money and politics. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk some money and politics. 
We've got Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and we've got Monica Crowley, former assistant secretary of the Treasury and the author of the Monica Crowley podcast. Welcome, kids. I appreciate it very, very much. So I just want to talk, uh, start about the Trump um, after his indictment and after his speech at Mar-a-Lago. Anyway, Liz Peek, his polls continue to skyrocket. Uh, I saw some new stuff today. Uh, he's now up about 35 points in at least some polls against DeSantis, and he's also taken a lead uh, against Biden. Now, is this stuff going to last? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the DeSantis story. Um, he gave a good speech Tuesday night. He made some very important points. Um, but what do you think about this story? How does this change the race? Well, I mean, it changes it pretty profoundly, I'd say, because an awful lot of people in America thinks there are two systems of justice, one for people on the left and one for people on the right. And what we witnessed last week with the indictment of Donald Trump on truly frail and unworthy charges uh, kind of reinforces that view. I mean, people think this was vastly unfair. Obviously, he's raised, what, eight, nine million dollars now. Uh, off the back of this uh, indictment. But I think more more importantly, again, people across the country, whether they like him or hate him, I think they just thought, wait a minute, this is going too far. We know you hate Donald Trump, but really this is this is how this is going to play out in our justice system. So I, uh, it has given him a platform. Uh, Donald Trump thrives on grievance and Uh, also on vengeance. I mean, I think he is really angry about this. I would be, too. Uh, It has stirred up his base, and I don't know that that's going to go away anytime soon. Mm, Interesting. You know, Monica, I thought he gave a a good speech. Um, It is his grievance, but, you know, on the two-tiered system that that Liz mentioned, I mean, one of the ideas here that Trump is saying is, you know, this happened to me, but it can happen to you. It can happen to you. And I think that's pretty powerful stuff. So I wondered, uh, this really enters a whole new dimension into the GOP primary. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Larry. And it's great to be here with you and Liz. Um, Look, Donald Trump is a unique political phenomenon in American uh, political history, and certainly in this moment. And one of his many superpowers is that he was able from the very beginning to forge an organic emotional bond with his voters, with the American people. Now, some people absolutely hate him, but a lot of people absolutely love him. And why is that? Because back in 2015 and 2016, he looked at the forgotten men and women in this country, and he said something very profound. He said, I see you, I hear you, and I will be your champion. And then for the next four years as president, he actually delivered for these people. And that's why that emotional bond, remember, this is not a political bond with Donald Trump or even Mm. an intellectual one. It's an emotional one. Mm. That is almost unbreakable. And it, it happened because it's organic, too, which also makes it even stronger. That is why every single time he is hit like this, he gets stronger because it's the human response to want to rally around their champion and give him some backup because they feel like he has fought for them for the last seven or eight years and now they're going to step up and fight for him. Mm. So again, you know, that the left can't not do it. 
right? They cannot help themselves. They know throughout the last seven or eight years, every time they hit him, it only strengthens well, him and 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 burnishes yeah. his appeal. But they can't stop themselves. And now what's happening is that he is so far ahead of his nearest competitor, Governor DeSantis. I'm not quite convinced that DeSantis is actually going to get in the race uh, now. I want to hang things on. Could it could happen and the dynamics could change. Right. But as of this moment, Larry, it looks like Donald Trump is cruising to the nomination. I want to come back to DeSantis in a minute. But um, a question I get, uh, it's funny, I always kid this. They should move the jury because there are no Republicans in Manhattan County, New York City, except for five or six of us that have dinner at an Italian restaurant every week. And we had our dinner at the Italian restaurant on Wednesday after the Tuesday stuff. And the question that came up was, can uh, Mr. Trump get to 51 percent in the general election or, you know, 50.1 percent, whatever? Can he get there, Liz? Well, that's the question, and I think that's what Republican primary voters have to wonder about and worry about, that, yes, he's going to win the primaries maybe quite easily, but then aren't those unfavorables and the really uh, solid core of Democrats who just loathe him mm. going to keep him from winning? I mean, what he has going for him is that now they pretty much loathe Joe Biden as well. If Joe Biden is the candidate, uh, right now he is not polling well with anybody. Uh, there's not going to be any great surge of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. He can't go out campaigning uh, on his own behalf. Uh, so, you know, I think he's going to play, uh, you know, we've talked about this. I think he's going to play out pretty much what he did in 2020, which is to sort of stay out of sight, let Trump create his own problems for himself and hope voters decide that they're better off under Joe Biden. But that's the problem, Larry, for Joe Biden right now. Uh, we're not better off than we were four years ago. Very few people would say that. In 2020, he was sort of an unknown quantity in terms of how effective a president he would be. Now we know he's a terrible president, and America is suffering on all fronts, uh, and that's why his approval ratings have just been stuck in the garage. And, you know, I think I think that's where we're going to be. Well, I know. I mean, you know, Monica, in 2020 uh... – I don't know, Liz, somebody called it the basement strategy. Yeah. But people, you know, hoped he would be more Bill Clinton. I, I, you know, AKA moderate Democrat. But without question now, we know he was Bernie Sanders and he ran against Bernie Sanders and people, Democrats were relieved, but we know he's Bernie Sanders. Now that changes the race, it seems to me. And it greatly weakens Biden's whole position. Yeah, because when he ran in 2020, he was able to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and position himself as some sort of moderate. And, of course, he was never a moderate, and he's certainly not a moderate in terms of governing as president. So the question is, how do they keep him back in the basement for the next campaign if, in fact, he's going to run? I'm not convinced he's running. I think he put off this uh, announcement until the fall because – I think the only person who believes he's running is Joe Biden. Um, So now we're going to have to look at a different Democratic landscape. Um, But look, all of the energy and activism are on the radical left. 
in that party. The, you know, the Joe Mansions of the world are few and far between because the party has had a wholesale takeover of these insane Marxists. And that's where all of the driving forces are on the left. What? So even if, if Biden runs again, he could very well be primaried by somebody on the left. I'm not saying AOC, but maybe somebody like that or maybe even her. I don't know. Well, but there is a civil war going on on the left as well as on the right. Be, be, before we take a break, uh Liz Peake, does Robert F. Kennedy Jr. cause Biden trouble? Huh. He might. Well, he, 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 do you he know was... Bob Kennedy? I know him uh, some. He used to come on my old CNBC show. He's no dummy, by the way. Well, he's no dummy. He has a really interesting, obviously very controversial view of vaccines mm. and how we treated COVID. That's going to be a problem for Joe Biden because it's pretty hard for Joe Biden to argue that his one area where he gets positive approval ratings, which is on handling COVID, was actually a disaster. Our deaths uh, per thousand Americans are worse than any other developed country. And by the way, it got worse when Joe Biden took over, even though we had a vaccine. So I think if that conversation is goes public, which it really never has, uh, that could cause Joe Biden a lot of problems. I know. I'm- I, I, who was that? Oh, I was talking to Kevin Hassett, uh, whether we should go talk to Bob Kennedy Jr. Uh, and, and get him to endorse his uncle's tax cuts, the JFK tax yeah, cuts. Yeah, good idea. Okay. What, <laughs> I, I know it's a little fanciful, but we were having that conversation. Uh, let me take a quick break, ladies. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, uh, syndicated columnist. Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and author of the Monica Crowley Podcast. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Monica Crowley, former assistant treasury secretary and author of the Monica Crowley podcast. Monica Crowley, what does Ron DeSantis do now? Well, isn't that the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> um, look, he's got this massive war chest of upwards of $200 million dollars. I'm just sitting there waiting to be used. And I think he's playing it very smart. And I think he's played it very smart all along because he understands Donald Trump is still the 800-pound gorilla in the Republican Party. And now with this indictment, it's really poured rocket fuel on the Trump campaign for 2024. So I think DeSantis is being very wise to hang back, wait. Um, the legislature is still in legis- legislative session in Florida, so he is busy actually governing the state, and he's in this battle again with Disney. Um, so he is taking care of his day job, but I think he's smart to just hold back and see how all of this is going to shake out. As we said before the break, the dynamics are very fluid here with Trump and this particular indictment, but let's not forget there are a number of other investigations, including DOJ, January 6th, Georgia, 
and they could actually hit Trump with maybe two or three additional indictments mm-hmm. coming down the pike. And that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So, look, if I'm Ron DeSantis, I've got enough money where I don't have to get out there early and start fundraising. Mm-hmm. I can afford to wait. Right. But he's also going to be paying very close attention to these poll numbers, Let- Larry. And he's seeing that Donald Trump is really taking right. off. And he doesn't want to right. poison himself for the future. Liz, you're, but I'm, I'm now anointing you. Chief political strategist for the DeSantis campaign. Yeah. Chief political strategist. There are issues that he could take up, okay? One of the issues is the, remember the New York versus Florida, the Wall Street Journal editorial, uh, which I wrote up on a whole bunch of people. You know, you you live in Miami, your tax rate is zero. You live in New York, it's 14.8. Florida grows faster. Florida's population is higher than New York, but the budget is 50% less than New York. I've not heard DeSantis talk about any of that stuff. And I just wonder, I understand he's in a pickle right now, and Monica's probably right. He's going to wait out the legislative session. But uh, shouldn't he be trying to develop a prosperity economic growth message? I mean, wouldn't that help him? He's got one tailor-made. But he yeah. never talks about it. I don't think the battle with Disney is going to particularly help him. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, in fact, when he goes into this anti-woke mm. stance, which he's really pushed very, very hard, I, I think that must be to gain ground with Trump voters and sort of the hard right. Uh, and, and perhaps he's looking at the primaries. But you know what? That Some of that stuff's going to cost him in the general election, I think. Mm. And, boy, I think what you're talking about is absolutely the way to go right now because not only he has the goods, he's got the message and the experience and the resume which says, hey, I can really run a solid economy. And he talks about things that he's done in office like – you know, no drama and and sort of how we don't we never have leaks and we don't have a lot of turnover. All that's very impressive. But boy, what's more impressive, everyone in New York is going to Florida. And mm. there's a reason for that. Mm. So he should talk about that, especially, Larry, because I think there's really a good chance uh, a lot of this campaign is going to go on with a saggy, uh, soggy and dis- declining economy. So that's going to be an awful lot of the battle in 2024 is who has the better economic plan and Florida does. So why not talk about it? Yeah. What do you think about that, Mike? I mean, I think, I really think that's DeSantis's best card to play. I don't, I don't think fighting Walt Disney and can, yeah. cancel culture, you know, look, he could appear, but that's Trump's base. He's not going to out Trump on that stuff. He, he needs to shift gears. Otherwise, maybe you're going to be right, and he just isn't going to run at all. And Nikki Haley will be around, and I don't know, somebody else will be around. But Trump's going to wind up winning the primaries easily. Look, I think any Republican candidate who's seeking the presidential nomination needs to be talking about an economic agenda. That is a pro-growth economic agenda of tax cuts, regulatory relief, unleashing our great energy sector, fair trade deals. It's basically the Trump pro-growth economic policy. Uh, Ron DeSantis has such a record in Florida. Florida is booming. It is thriving thanks to his steady hands on, on the economic levers of that state. So he's got a great economic story to tell. And honestly, I think that there are going to be many factors that go into this election next year, but the economy is going to be the driving force. Mm. Most people expect 
some sort of a recession by the end of this year going into next year, whether it's mild or deep or protracted or short, nobody knows. But a lot of people are anticipating a softening of the economy. And so this is going to be fertile ground for a pro-growth economic message. People vote on how things directly relate to them. So uh, all of these candidates should be talking economy and how they bring this country back. The problem for the rest of them is that Donald Trump has such an extraordinary economic record, thanks to you and others, Secretary Mnuchin and others, that he's got a full advantage on that. Others might have a great track record like Ron DeSantis in a state, but Donald Trump brought the economy back not once, but twice. Mm. First when he came in after eight years of Obama, and then after the unprecedented lockdowns of COVID. So, you know, he can say, look, I did it twice. Here's how I'm going to do it a third time. And that message blows everybody else out. So, so Liz, I think think we have to turn Robert Kennedy Jr., into a JFK supply side. <laughs> let's see. Let's have them battling, Larry, on who can go to the lowest tax rates, the best tax yes. program. Yes, that's a great idea. Yes, that's what. Uh, that's my vision. That's my vision. I don't think anybody else shares that vision. But that's, that's hey, my, I think you should have him on the show. That's you know. Yeah, you know what? I I I, I used to talk to him a lot uh, years ago on the other sh- back at CNBC. Uh, it was mostly about climate. Uh, he's a big climate guy, okay. But on these other issues, he may be a whole lot more moderate. He may not be a Bernie Sanders Democrat. That's the yeah. interesting thing. I, I don't know. Right now, he's a, I guess he's running to keep New Hampshire as the first in the nation primary. That's his big issue. I, I want to just weigh in on one with one comment. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a brand new CNN poll out that shows only a third of Americans say that Joe Biden deserves to be reelected. Mm. And we can all talk about all the reasons for that. But you guys are right that he definitely ran as a moderate. He also ran as someone who was going to bring our country together. And I really can't think of a president who's been more divisive, who has been more insulting to mm. people who voted for the other candidate. You know, I think I think the whole image of Joe Biden has changed. He's not a nice man. And I think uh, you know, you can look at all the kind of in-depth polls that talk about dishonesty and things mm-hmm. like that. I don't think people like him very much anymore. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, Monica, he's a lot. It's funny. All these headlines I saw how the Democrats covet the fact that uh, Trump is winning the primaries and he's the easiest guy for Biden yeah. to beat. I, you sure? I mean, I'm going to take the under on that. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Right. Isn't that true in right. life? It's right. certainly true in politics, right? Um, and look, they, they thought that Donald Trump was going to be the candidate easily to beat in 2016. And Mrs. Clinton was riding high mm. and she was already planning, you know, her second term. And Donald Trump, uh, you know, surprised everybody. So, look, I, I think you I think the left continues to underestimate Donald Trump. And, you know, they're going to war with him in every possible way, as they have for the last several years, to try to stop him. And, again, I think that only makes him stronger. But I also think that given the faltering economy, you know, you don't have to – and you don't – you no longer have to go back 40 years to the Reagan era, also you were a part of, Larry, for a touchstone of a strong economy. You no longer have to go back in your memory and back in time. You only have to go back two and a half years Mm. to remember a booming economy pre-COVID. 
And now look at the, the economic catastrophe that we're facing, which is only going to get worse over the next year and a half. And I think that is really going to play into any Republican's hands. But certainly Donald Trump, I think, has the advantage on that issue. I, I think uh, I think one factor was Alvin Bragg forgot to charge Trump with a crime. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Notice that he forgot the crime part. Well, I mean, he, he has made sort of a mockery yeah. of his entire uh, legal vendetta against yeah. Donald Trump. And I think it seriously weakens and undermines the other legal problems that, that Donald Trump has. Monica's right. There are a bunch of them coming. And I, I do think that the strategy of Democrats now is just to keep those headlines coming. The fact that the next hearing in this trial isn't until December sort of says it all, right? I mean, what, how could possibly that be necessary? Why don't they just get this thing done? Well, they don't want to. They want to have a cascade of of indictments and charges and so forth coming out, because that is the only way I'm sure they think that Joe Biden can win. I mean, he's going to be kind of under the radar. In fact, the New York Times had a headline the other day about, you know, Team Biden, not thrilled, but it was sort of pleased to be under the radar. They should be. My favorite is the judge gave $15 to the Democratic Party, yeah, to Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah. $15 lets disqualify. Monica Crowley, thank you so much. Liz Peek, as always, thank you. Folks, I'll be back next weekend. I'm Kudlow. Thank you. Yeah, I had it. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.